Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. You may be seated. Well, today we get to pick up our sermon series that uh, is called The Way. And last week we started part one of three of this dinner party that Jesus is having. Jesus is with some important religious people and he's going to a dinner party, a post-Sabbath synagogue dinner party with them. And so last week we started, and it's, it's sort of like you can go back and listen to last week if you missed it. Um, it's not like a Lord of the Rings or some sort of trilogy that builds on itself. It's more like Ghostbusters where they kind of happen in the same context, but they're totally different. Um, and so what we're going to do is spend three weeks on this dinner party and kind of take three different angles at it and uh, see what happens from there. I am part of a generation of children that were raised uh, kind of consecutively by these, these kind of major things in my life. So like, I, I grew up raised by Sesame Street. That was kind of the first um, non-parental parent that I had. And then you kind of graduate from Sesame Street into Mr. Rogers and going to the crayon factory with Mr. Rogers. And that was a lot of fun. And then eventually um, I graduated kind of from there into uh, Cubs baseball at 120 every afternoon on WGN. And so it's sort of like my, if you want to see like, how did this person get to be so strange? You just kind of look at those three things. And this was back before the, the uh, Cubs Stadium Wrigley Field, back before it had lights, August of 1988. We won't talk about that anymore. But, but before then, you could get on 81 home games that were during the day. It was fantastic. And I would assume as a parent now, it would be super fantastic to have a kid who wanted to go spend three hours in front of the television watching it because that's three hours you don't have to do anything. Anyway, the point of this is the first of those three, the Sesame Street part of my life, you begin to learn kind of basic foundational ideas. And the thing that they would sing uh, every couple days, they would have, they would play the game called one of these things is not like the other. Remember one of these things is not like the other? And so here's them playing one of these things is not like the other. And so I know you thought it was going to be like a big hard thing, but one of the ice cream cones is bigger um, if you didn't know that. In the world of preschool education, this is known as classification skills. These are, these are creating classification skills for children. These are foundational for human thought to be able to understand um, how to classify different things into different places. This is even predating kind of the comparing and contrasting. It just goes, how do I classify the things I see in front of me? And what we learn in this formative stage, we keep as the years progress. We continue to classify as we go as children and then as adults. This probably peaks sometime in middle school or high school where we learn how to classify everyone and everything. And those who don't fit in with the others are often most reviled in those difficult years. It's also at that time that we learn in our middle school, high school years when our prefrontal cortex is forming, we begin to learn how to manipulate the world around us so that it feels as if we fit in, so that others might see that we fit in. How do I fit in? How do I gain status? How do I find myself in the right crowd? This is why fashion exists. Because somebody got smart at some point and said, you know, we could all wear the same jumpsuit every single day of our lives and never have another worry. Or we can create fashion, and every so often the trend will change, and it will help adults in classifying who is with it and who is not. And so this is why you have blue jean styles that change every six weeks. Some of you right now are wearing bell bottoms or boot cut or slim fit or relaxed fit, loose fit, skinny jeans, mom jeans. Those came back in. Are they still in? I don't know. Carpenter jeans. They got the little loop on them. 
I never owned a hammer in the loop, but I had the carpenter jeans, acid wash jeans, stone wash jeans, dark wash jeans. We are the unwashed masses who can't seem to keep up with what is the new style of blue jeans. But they help us to classify the world around us. And so if I walk into a room and you're all wearing carpenter jeans, I either understand what year you're caught in in the fashion loop, or I know that I've walked into a tradesman convention. One way or the other, you, you kind of get it. You're like, ah, I get it. Classification is something that we naturally do, and it's something that's happening in the midst of Jesus in this moment, and it actually matters. So we pick up the story of Jesus as we've been reading in Luke 14, and it says this, Jesus went on to tell a story to the guests around the table. Noticing how each had tried to elbow into the place of honor, he said this, when someone invites you to dinner, don't take the place of honor. Somebody more important than you might have been invited by the host. Then he'll come and call out in front of everybody, you're in the wrong place. The place of honor belongs to this man. And embarrassed, you'll have to make your way to the very last table, the only place left. So instead, when you're invited to dinner, go and sit at the last place. Then when the host comes, he may very well say, friend, come up to the front. That will give the dinner guest something to talk about. What I'm saying is, if you walk around all high and mighty, you're going to end up flat on your face. But if you're content to be simply yourself, you'll become more than yourself. And so then Jesus turned to the host and he said, next time you put on a dinner, don't just invite your friends and family and rich neighbors, the kind of people who will return the favor. Invite some people who never get invited out. The misfits from the wrong side of the tracks. You will be and you will experience a blessing. They won't be able to return the favor, but the favor will be returned. Oh, how it will be returned at the resurrection of God's people. I've seen this taught numerous different ways. One of the main ways you'll see this taught is sort of a general humility lesson, which is true and right, but maybe incomplete. There may be more to it. I've also seen this passage of Scripture been occasionally taught as some sort of like Jesus-flavored leadership lesson, like Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, but with a Jesus-Jedi mind trick baked in, so, so you could kind of reverse psychology your way into the top seat. And you see this in, you can see this in Sunday school or in, in kids will get in line and, and you'll see a kid that goes to the back and you're like, what are you doing? And then the Sunday school kid, he knows the answer. He's read the thing and he goes, well, first shall be last. You know what I mean? And you go, well, I don't think it's that. In fact, that's something we call false humility. And the danger of this passage is what Jesus is teaching is a humility-based kind of concept. And yet we can, if we're not careful, allow false humility to creep in. God opposes the proud, gives favor to the humble, but what about the falsely humble? What about false humility? False humility is everywhere in our society. You see it in various ways. One of the ways that in the last 10 years or so it's become a kind of a, an online joke in a way is something called the humble brag, where you hide a prideful tidbit in a self-deprecating idea. And so you make a really big thing of how great you are, but you say it in a way that makes it act like you're being humble. So I grabbed two off the, I just literally Googled humble brag tweet. And so I pulled two tweets um, from people who I think are famous. Uh, Joe Jonas, I think is a Jonas brother. I'm doing that just, it's total inductive reasoning. I have no real proof of this. So read that. Totally walked down the wrong escalator at the airport from the flashes of the camera. Go me. I'm so famous that I just went the wrong way. Like so many people wanted to take pictures of me. I went the wrong way. It's a humble brag. It's false humility. Or Annie Duke, who I don't know who Annie Duke is, but somebody will tell me. Can we start a media campaign to question how I got into Columbia too? Still scratching my head about how I got accepted, and I demand answers. Guys, I'm so smart, I've gotten into multiple really hard to get into schools, but I'm going to act as if it's like super confusing how I did this. It's a humble brag. 
It's a way of, of advancing your prideful self, but doing it in a, in a humble shell. False humility is just pride in humble clothes. And it's actually one of the more vile forms of pride because not only is, humble, is, is false humility prideful, but it's manipulative in a way, trying to get people to see something else in you. It's someone being so aware of their vice and their ability to cover it with false virtue that it creates this sort of insidious loop to it. This is really hard for me. This is something uh, nobody really teaches you how to do this when you begin preaching. Uh, basically, every Sunday of my last 15 years of my life, I stand up in front of people and I say things. And sometimes people will actually compliment the things I say. They're, oh, good sermon. And at the beginning of my kind of ministry, I didn't know what to say to that because it felt wrong to be like, thanks so much. <laughs> it was good, wasn't it? Which point was your favorite, you know? Like, that's not going to, that doesn't play real well. But you also, you don't want to get caught in the false humility loop. I, I knew a, a guy, I won't mention what role they had in the church, but if somebody said, great job on anything ministry-related, they would go, oh, no, I'm just a, I'm just a wicked vessel. But praise and glory to him. I'm, a, I'm just a wicked vessel, wicked vessel. And be like, no, no, you did a great job. And like, no, no, God's great. I'm a wicked vessel. Thanks you. Keep them separate. Just say thank you. And I, was, I kind of got frustrated. And I was like, what, what is it? And that, that person's strange response has taught me how to have a more honest response, which is to say thank you. And to sometimes say, you know, like, thanks, I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks, I hope it connected. Thanks, I hope it mattered. But it's a strange thing because you don't want to feel prideful, but you also don't want to slip into that false humility either. Like, I work hard at this. I, I want you to think it's great. I want you to be moved to grow. I want it to be excellent for you, and I want to be excellent at it. And so when you say, hey, your sermon wasn't terrible today, I should say, thanks, appreciate that, and leave it there. False humility responses accept the praise in our hearts and then attempt to double down with self-deprecation in order to win greater praise. And it's really subtle, but we got to be careful. So if that's not what this is about, is creating some sort of false humility Jesus juke, then what's really happening here? Jesus, I want to offer to you the idea that Jesus is actually describing, as he describes this inviting in the outsider, he's describing his ministry on earth. He's describing the way his kingdom works, using the dinner party as sort of a, a metaphor. He's basically talking to the Pharisees, singing one of these things is not like the other. But he's pointing at himself, being like, look, I'm not going to do the way you do. I'm not going to live the way you live. As, as he builds his kingdom, it's not going to look like the way that people have built kingdoms, like the religious kingdoms are being built around him. It's, it's not going to look like that at all. And so if you think about it that way, Jesus is sort of the host in his own kingdom, and his followers are all last seat sort of people, aren't they? As Jesus creates his kingdom, as he goes and calls people out to follow him, he's not picking the people who have the most influence and the most power and the most status who can give him the most lift in the world. What he's actually doing is having come to earth as God in human form, who has the most status and the most power, he has all of that. He actually, he actually subverts it, and he invites in last seat sort of people, the uneducated, the fisherman, the prostitute, the tax collector. He's inviting these people into his orbit, which is so confounding for those who already are in this established religious structure. He's inviting people that have been disqualified by the religious types, the kind of people who don't get invited to dinner. Why don't they get invited to dinner, you ask? I'm glad you asked. Because they don't offer anything to the host. 
There's no quid pro quo when you invite the tax collector into your religious festival. In first century Jewish homes, and the same is true mostly in our homes, mostly, whether we do it consciously or not, we relate to other people, we invite other people into our lives, mostly because they offer us something. Whether it's emotional gratification or some status boost or it's a network connection, mostly if we're not paying attention, if we're not intentional to do it the way that Jesus does it, we'll naturally default into the normal human kingdom building way of life. We invite people who can offer us something. Jesus' normal dinner party was fishermen and tax collectors and the pesky brawlers known as the Zebedee boys, the sons of thunder. The people that no one else really had time or patience for, Jesus said, this is why I'm here. Jesus is performing one of these classification skills kind of things, except instead of saying one of these things is not like the other and so you want to be like the mainstream, he's doing this other thing where he goes, one of these things is not like the other and we are going to swim upstream. I'm going to do it the different way and it's actually the right way. To build his kingdom is not to build himself up. That's how all power is attained in our world. You've got to kiss the ring. You've got to make the rounds. You have to know the right people. You've got to make the right deals. And we keep saying that Jesus is a servant king leading an upside-down kingdom. And so in his kingdom, you don't use people to build up power. In a world where leaders use people to build up power, Jesus uses his power to build up people. And that seems like a cute little turn of phrase, but if you really stop and think about it, in a world where leaders use people to build power, Jesus uses his power to build people. That is a radical reimagining of the human existence. One of the reasons I love this church community so much is we are organized this way. When I came to interview years ago, I was pitched on the merits of the church, here's who we are. And the thing that was, was most gripping for me was the number of things that were started by people in this church that have currently no affiliation or no one would ever know were started by people in this church. The thing I love the most is, well, the pregnancy center, yeah, we had a hand in that. And Global Connections, we had a hand in that. And, and on it goes, of all the things that people in this church have breathed out this school that ministers to these hundreds of families, we had a hand in that. Like, we did this, and we did this, and we did this. And, and I'm looking around going, like, I didn't see any of those ministries on your website. Like, I didn't see the Covenant Church School, the Covenant Church Women's Center, the Covenant Church International Friends. I don't see any of it. Because there was a certain humility built into it that goes, we are going to, uh, we're going to plant our work in these things, but not plant our flag in it. We don't need the credit. We just need the kingdom to do what the kingdom is supposed to do. We just need to participate in what it is that God is doing around us. And for me, that's one of the most beautiful things about this community and this kind of ongoing evolution of who we are is that over and over and over again, we see things started here, birthed here, and sent out from here. And there's not a whole lot of evidence you can trace back to figure out where it came from. So Tanya Huger leads our open table movement where we have invited all these other churches. We invite anybody who wants to come. You're from what, what church? What denomination? We don't care. Come on in. It isn't Covenant Church's movement. It's the open table movement of Northwest Ohio, and we continue to find new little nodes where it grows, and people are pretty soon aren't going to know that it ever started here. What they're going to know is that people are being helped all around this region. People are being served and loved, and relationships are being grown, and that's what makes it beautiful. It's because it doesn't earn us anything. It can't get traced back to us. That's what happens when we drop the agenda of growing our church and instead focus on building the kingdom. 
challenging and it's sharpening and it's stretching. And it reminds us that ultimately God builds his church, that the Spirit draws people, and we get to simply spur each other on towards greater participation, greater humility in the true kingdom. Take you behind the scenes a little bit. Uh, on our staff, we have a kind of a three-part strategy as how, how ministry functions, kind of any project, any uh, ministry department, any kind of anything we do, it has this three-part function. It's, it's 3D. So, you know, a 2D church is kind of flat, but a 3D church is this fully functioning church. And so I'll put it up on for you. And it's, it's when I kind of laid it out for us, it was draw, develop, deploy. You draw and then disciple, develop people, and then deploy them out into the world to, to make kingdom gains, to, to do kingdom work. And this year, after kind of spending all this time with Jesus on this subversive journey he's on, I actually said, this is not right. And it's not that the words are wrong. It's not that the theme is wrong. It's that the order is wrong. Because I just did it in linear fashion. Draw, well, you got to draw, you got to have a person before you can develop a person, then you deploy the person. And the more I watch Jesus, the more I'm like, no, 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 he didn't do it this way. Every time the crowd would show up for Jesus, he would disperse them with really difficult teaching, or he'd get in the boat and go to the other side of the lake and leave them behind. Like, Jesus didn't seem really interested in the draw part. He seemed to be building up people so as to deploy them so that they would do that later. And so we actually re, uh, this is going to be radical if you've got to look at this slide with me as it changes. It's going to be big. We reimagine the entire slide. Okay, go to the next one. Oh, we just twisted it because our job is to develop and decide. We're here to make disciples. We're here to develop each other towards Christ's likeness, knowing that a fully developed follower of Christ, a fully discipled follower of Christ will in turn be deployed naturally because we cannot help ourselves when we are disciples of Christ to be deployed into the world to make a difference. And a fully developed follower of Christ will, by the very nature of who they are, draw people into the kingdom of God here or anywhere else. I don't care. And so it's just a mind trick for us though, because if we're not careful, what we do is just having that other word in there first changes subconsciously. It changes what we do. It changes how we do it. Danger of having draw as your first word is people become pawns in a growth scheme. When develop is your first word, people become your focus and all you exist to do. And it simply changes the way we think about what our top priority is. Our top priority is discipling people. And if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, your top priority is to make disciples, knowing that those disciples will be compelled by the Holy Spirit of God to deploy out into the world, to love others, and they will be drawn in by the Spirit into the next wave of disciples. So we have to focus on developing people, on discipling people. God will do the drawing. But it's a simple little switch. Jesus chased away big crowds. Doesn't mean he doesn't like big crowds. But what we see over and over is Jesus focused on individual hearts. And that's always been the heart of who this community has been. That's the story I heard five years ago about who this, this is a community focused on individual hearts, on stories that come together in this kind of interwoven fabric of tapestry of who we are becoming. If there's the hardest part of the COVID uh, season of life as a minister, it is that we don't get to see your face anymore. I don't get to meet people face to face. I don't, I don't get to have those personal interactions. I don't get to hear the story with the full understanding of what's going on in your life. When I ask a question, I don't see if the lip is quivering when the answer comes back. That we're an individual ministry, each and every one of us a minister of the kingdom, each and every one of us 
is designed to have ministry with other human beings face to face. And if God wants to draw thousands to a church, that's fine. But our job as his followers is to follow him and what he did, which is to focus on one at a time. One to a community. Developing one heart towards grace and towards Christ, who isn't concerned about your resume, just wants to continue to develop a humble heart in you. And that's the message he's giving to the Pharisees here. Until you can find genuine humility, envisioning yourself as the person who gets the worst seat at the table and then using your power to lift others around you, until you can get to that genuine humility, Jesus is saying, you just don't get it. Until you get to the place where you willingly and wantingly take the worst seat at the table because that just means other people get the better seats. Until you can get there, Jesus says, you just don't get it. This is not a game where if you take the worst, you'll get invited up and it'll be cool and you'll get noticed. Jesus is saying until you see anonymous service in the same way that you see front page headlines, you don't get it. Jesus was the host in his life. He took the lowest place. Jesus is the host, the Lord of hosts. And he comes to earth to take the lowest place. Jesus comes to take the cross. There is no worse seat. And he takes the cross so as to lift us up, to invite scoundrels and sinners from the shadows and alleyways, to invite exhausted moms so tired of faking it into an authentic way of life with real joy, to invite prideful men who project strength to cover vulnerability and weakness and woundedness into true healing. Jesus comes to invite the down and out to be lifted up and brought in. He takes down and out and lifts them up and brings them in. But he doesn't do it through some sort of trick of humility. He does it through ultimate, genuine humility. Jesus comes to take the worst seat. Jesus deals with human glory, and he eschews that in favor of eternal glory. He says, I don't need your praise. I got bigger things coming. And then he shows us a similar path. He says, if you're willing to follow me, to take your cross and follow me, if you're willing to take the worst seat with me, then you'll be on the way. Then you'll be on the way to becoming one of these things that's not like the others. And so this story, this part of the dinner party, he's kind of inviting us into this subversive upstream way of living. Where one, we are to seek out and cultivate true humility. And then two, reject the power structures of the world And then watch as those things come together and they begin to free us up to build lives that build others up. To use our days to bring last seat people to Jesus' table. To make outsiders insiders, to serve like Jesus, to love like Jesus. And if we can do that, if we can actually set our minds to this genuine humility to become last seat sort of people, if we can get ourselves at a place where we live to lift others up, even if no one ever finds out about it, Jesus tells us what we can expect. He says in the scripture, you will be and you will experience a blessing. They won't be able to return the favor, but the favor will be returned. Oh, how it will be returned at the resurrection of God's people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are uh, your people And yet we are living in this world that uh, tries to convince us of so many other ways that are available. God, our prayer is that you would make us a humble people, 
that you would give us true, genuine, deep humility. God, I know that that is a uh, dangerous prayer. That humility often comes with great heartache. That humility to be brought to a low place, to be humbled. Father, that can be so difficult. And yet, Lord, what we're after in this world is to be more like you. What we're after is to walk the way that you've set for us to, to live upstream. So God, as we consider the way that Jesus interacts with those around him when he walked this earth, God, my prayer is that you would convict us of the places where we are operating like the Pharisees, that you would invite us into places of humility, that you would cultivate in us hearts that would yearn to be last seat sort of people. You would give us eyes to see those around us who need to be lifted up, who need to be who need to be seen as greater, who we can leverage our power for to see them made greater. Father, these are hard things to internalize. They're hard things to put into practice in a world that is dead set against all the principles that you are. And yet, God, we know through you all things are possible. And so, Father, we open our hands, make us humble. Hold us close. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon, every Sunday, in person or online. Thanks for listening.